<coughs> Do you ever sit down to watch something on the TV, or maybe occasionally you even go to the cinema to watch a film with friends, and you find it really hard to follow? You really struggle to get a handle on what is going on? And maybe you're talking to the people that you're watching it with. If you're sitting at home, you, you talk to someone in your house or in your family, or maybe even you're, you're texting or sending WhatsApp messages to a friend who you know is watching the same thing, and you're trying to work it out between you. And we hear ourselves saying things like, I couldn't tell if she was a goodie or a baddie. Did, did you know what, what the score was with her? Is he meant to be one of the good guys in this? Because we like our stories to be clear. If you want to use a fancy word, we like our stories to be binary. We like to watch a story and know who is who so that we can cheer on the good guys and hope that the bad guys get their comeuppance at the end of the story. Well, when you turn to God's Word, and as you begin to read your way through the book of Judges, at times it can be hard to tell who are the goodies and who are the baddies. Who is it that we should actually be cheering on as we read our way through this book? Because in many parts of this book, there's nobody who appears to be particularly good in Judges. So that if you're turning to this part of God's Word, if you're sitting down to read the book of Judges in the hope that it will give you examples to follow and live by, then I've got news for you. You will be sorely disappointed. Tonight we come to the 13th sermon from the book of Judges, and it is because of different things that have been happening the first time in over a month that we look at this book together on a Sunday evening. And so it's worth remembering again the period in which this book is set, the period in which these judges ruled. And we have said of it that it is a time when Israel had lost the plot. It had lost the run of itself. It was as if people were making it up as they went along. So that what we read here in this story is a story of the people's failure, but it is also a great story of God's faithfulness. Indeed, that is the big story that we encounter here. It is the one that we should be most focused on, because please remember this, there is only one true hero in this story. There is only one that we encounter in this book who is truly good and faithful, and that is the Lord Himself. And if ever you needed a reminder of that truth, well, you just need to look at the start of Judges 16. Turn with me in your Bibles to that chapter again. And Samson, again, it comes with that kind of parental advisory warning, because where do we find Samson? Right at the beginning of this chapter, well, not to put too fine a point on it, we find him in bed with a prostitute. So that if you scan down through verses 1 to 3, it reminds us 
that Samson is not a Sunday school lesson, that he's not a Bible hero whom we should seek to emulate. But please remember this, because God's Word tells us this, He is a Savior. And we'll come to that in just a moment. So that whatever we may think about Samson, whatever we might make of the circumstances and the events of his life that are recorded here in these chapters, the key thing to remember is that he was sent by God for the purpose of saving God's people. So that if we return back again to chapter 13 in Judges, and if we look back at chapter 13, verse 5, and the beginning of the story of Samson's life, there we see again how Samson's parents were told before he was even born what he was going to be all about, what it is that he would do. And they're told of Samson, he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And that means that Samson's arrival into the world and the events of his life that we read about here ultimately point us to the Lord's faithfulness. All of these events point us to the grace that the Lord shows to His wayward people, that He loves them in spite of the way that they live their lives, not because of the way that they live their lives as His nation. It ultimately reminds us of how the Lord loves to save His people. So, with all of that in mind, let's dive into chapter 16. And this final episode in the story, indeed, the life of Samson. And I want us just very briefly to get a flavor of the chapter. And at this stage, it will probably come as no surprise to you. It's what we've kind of come to expect of this book, and particularly of Samson himself. So, that that if we do a quick survey of Judges 16, here are the kinds of things that we find. First of all, we read of some pretty ugly scenes. For example, in verse 21, where we read that Samson's eyes are gouged out by the people who capture him. And then the most dramatic and ugly scene of all comes towards the end of the chapter in verse 30, where we read about the death of many, many people, hundreds and hundreds of people who were either inside or on top of or standing around that building that collapsed and would have been crushed under the weight of it. Ugly scenes. But also, in this chapter, we read of ugly people. And I'm not talking about an external ugliness, an ugliness in the way that they look. I'm talking about an internal ugliness a brokenness and a sinfulness that is incredible for us to read about. And that, of course, begins with the prostitute herself, who Samson is with at the beginning of the chapter in Gaza. But it extends to the other woman who is mentioned in this chapter, in fact, who has a big role in the story of Samson, and that is Delilah, whom Samson falls in love with, and who we read about in verses 4 to 20. And you see this really, this pattern of of deceitfulness, this devious 
way that Delilah goes about trying to find out and then sell to the Philistines the secret of Samson's strength. But also, there is an ugliness, an inside ugliness amongst the Philistines that we read about all the way through the chapter from verse 4, because they will stop at nothing to get their man. And then when they capture Samson, the great cruelty that they show him. But if we're going to think about ugly people, broken and dysfunctional and sinful people that we see in this chapter, we can't ignore Samson himself. Once again, as we read about him all the way through this chapter, well, let's put it this way, he's not exactly the kind of person you would recruit to be a Sunday school teacher in Connor. Like, look at the first few verses, and you'll see what I mean. And because there are these ugly people, broken, sinful people, therefore, we also read of ugly relationships in this chapter, none more so than that relationship between Samson and Delilah. Maybe you recognize, if you're being really honest, some of the uglier aspects of some of your relationships and your friendships when you see Samson and Delilah in action here, because this is classic stuff. If we particularly concentrate on verses 15 and 16, and look at what Delilah says to Samson in verse 15, how can you say, I love you, when you won't confide in me? And it's that classic coercive thing in a relationship. It's something that you've maybe heard yourself say, or you've been on the receiving end of. You know, if you really loved me, you'd do this for me. And then the outcome of this, verse 16, and I don't want anybody tonight to indicate whether this sounds familiar to you or not, but with such nagging, Delilah prodded Samson day after day until he was sick to death. And we think of how it can be in some of our homes, some of the the relationships, the key relationships that there are. And you see, what this story of Samson and Delilah reminds us of is that relationships are dysfunctional because the people who form those relationships are dysfunctional. And we need to remember that because when something goes wrong in a relationship or a friendship that we are involved in, our tendency is to blame the other person. This failed because of him. This failed because of her. But please know that your relationship, your friendships, are tainted with sin because you are a sinner. And in some ways, as we read all of this, there is a measure of encouragement in what we're reading. That encouragement that we recognize that God's Word is not only truth, it is concerned about telling the whole truth. That the Bible deals with real life in all of its messiness and its brokenness. And that indeed can be a surprise to people. So often 
when people come to a book like Judges for the first time, they're leafing through it, and they're thinking to themselves, what? I can't believe this is in the Bible. But while there might be that measure of encouragement overall, if we were simply to have a superficial reading of a chapter like this, it would actually leave us discouraged and perplexed and maybe even a bit depressed. You might end up asking questions like, well, why is this in the Bible? How is this possibly God's Word? What hope can I possibly find in a chapter like this? Does it have any redeeming features at all? Well, what I want to tell you tonight is not only does this chapter have redeeming features, it's a chapter that is ultimately about redemption. And the key verse that unlocks for us the significance of chapter 16 has to be verse 30. Let's take a quick look at what leads up to that moment before we look at that verse itself. And what we see is that Samson gives in to Delilah's demands and reveals the source of his strength. It is his uncut hair. Or to be more accurate, because if you look carefully at verse 17, it is actually his obedience in keeping the Nazarite vow that his parents had made with the Lord, that vow that set Samson apart for God. And so, armed with this knowledge, the Philistines capture Samson, they abuse him, and they then ultimately put him on show so that Samson turns to the Lord and he asks for one last measure of strength so that he can take his revenge. So, let's read the spectacular climax to the story of Samson in verse 30 and what it is that Samson says to the Lord. He, he prays, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus, Samson killed many more when he died than while he lived. And as terrible as that sounds, what I want to tell you tonight is that that is actually a hopeful act, that there is gospel, there is good news in this moment. And maybe you're thinking, well, Philip, how can you possibly say that? Look at the terrible stuff that has happened here and all of those lives that are lost. After all, were Samson's motives pure here? Well, well no, we can't say that his motives were pure. He certainly had personal vengeance in mind. If you look at what he prays in verse 28, his prayer is that the Lord will enable him to get revenge for his two eyes, which have been gouged out. So, it's not exactly that Samson is acting with the Lord's glory ultimately in his mind. And how did he manage to do this? Where did his strength come from? Well, clearly, given the state that he was in and the prayer that he prays in verse 28, this final burst of strength comes from the Lord. But why does the Lord enable him to do it? 
So many people lose their lives. Well, I want you to think about who it is that Samson took down with him. It's the Philistines. More specifically, it's the great and the good of the Philistines. It's their leaders, their influencers. And remember who these people are. Let's not get all sentimental this evening. These are the people that if you read through the Old Testament story up until this point, and indeed go far beyond, they are the people who made the lives of God's chosen people, the Israelites, a complete misery for centuries. Indeed, they led them away from the worship of Yahweh, the one true living God, and led them into the worship of false gods and idols. It was the Philistines who prevented God's people from shining brightly for the Lord, being the nation that God had called them to be. So, when you really think about it, ultimately, it was God's glory that was at stake here. This is about His reputation. After all, He's promised to protect His people and to be faithful to them. And if you look back at chapter 14, and you look at verse 4, remember that chapter where there was so much conflict, where Samson seemed to be in conflict with so many people, and we're told what that conflict is all about. Look at, at Judges 14 verse 4, and we're reminded that the Lord was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. We see that all the way through the story of Samson. The Lord Himself was looking for a showdown in order that He could defeat the enemy who had enslaved and mistreated His people. That was God's way of keeping His promises and saving His people. And hearing that has got to be good news for God's people tonight. And remember that God's people is no longer one nation. It's not one side of a community as sometimes we imagine it to be, but it is His people in Christ. So, that's why we have the amazing conclusion to this story here in verse 30. Look at the, the final part of that verse again. We're told of Samson, thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. The Lord used Samson's death to bring about the salvation, the rescue of his people. Now, does that sound familiar to you? I want us to finish off by looking back at that verse again in chapter 13, verse 5. Remember words that are spoken about Samson before he was even born. And what was it that was said of him? He will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. You see that phrase, he will begin. It's not even the finished work. 
This great act of sacrifice didn't even end the problem of the Philistines. It was the start of what God planned to do. And in that sense, we can therefore say of Samson, as we close off this story of his life, that he was a partial, imperfect Savior. But now as we finish, think of the cross where the Lord Jesus Christ died. And think of the words that are recorded in John's gospel, the final words that Jesus speaks right at the point of death. What is it he said? He said, it is finished. And he wasn't talking about the the drink of wine that was offered to him. He wasn't saying that as a cry of defeat. The game is up. No, it was a cry of victory. It was a statement of accomplishment. It is finished. The job is done. The mission is complete. The price is paid. And at the cross, the Lord Jesus had no bitterness. He had no thought of vengeance against his enemies as he sacrificed his life. He had no self-interest. It was his Father's glory that was his great concern. After all, the night before he died, he prayed that prayer, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. In other words, take this mission out of my hands, yet not my will, but your will be done. And through his death, God's people are saved completely and eternally. Is that the case for you? Are you one of those people in Christ? In this story, we get to see that our God loves to save His people. And yes, maybe we struggle as we read through the life of Samson, we struggle with the Savior that He chose in the day of the judges, but it was God's will to choose Him and be sure Samson was His servant. Samson was His instrument of salvation. But whenever we look at the life and the death of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, well, honestly, there's nothing, nothing that would cause us any struggle or conflict in our minds. After all, He was the sinless one, perfect, loving and compassionate, a great example to follow, and a perfect Savior to trust in. So that as we think about that complete and perfect Savior this evening, we say of Jesus, hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen.